This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Back to the middle. And Benintendi is going to drive in one at least. Line left center field. That's going to roll deep. And Benintendi has his second RBI. Almost strikes. He swings and lines one into right for a base hit and should tie the game. Racing around third, Lopez, he'll score easily as Benintendi satisfied with a game-tying RBI single, and it's one-to-one. Edwin Diaz comes in to try and get a four-out save. The pitcher with the highest strikeout rate in baseball against the hitter with the highest strikeout rate in baseball. Joey Gallo takes a fastball for a strike. And a quick slider has Gallo in a no of two hole. 2-2. Two, two. Struck him out. Diaz gets Gallo with the slider. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, July 28th, 2022. You won't be surprised to know that the only thing that matters to anybody right now is the trade deadline, which is coming up on August 2nd. So a little bit later, we'll be joined by Mark Feinsand, MLB.com executive reporter, who's always plugged into all the rumors and scoops, and he's going to tell us what he's hearing. Matt and I will obviously get into a couple of guys you should know a little bit more about. And first, there's a, a couple of different things we want to talk about. Andrew Benatendi got traded. The Mets and Yankees played a really interesting series. Um, the Red Sox are kind of finished. The A's swept the Astros. Things are getting weird. But I wanted to start off with like my favorite moment of the season so far. And it was actually in the minor leagues. If you remember Pedro Baez, longtime Dodger reliever. Uh, and then went to the Astros for the last two years and is actually back with the Dodgers in the minor leagues now. Infamous for taking forever on the mound, like the slowest pitcher I've ever seen. We actually have data on this at, at Baseball Savant. I went and I looked from 2014 to 2020, of all the pitchers who threw at least 2,000 pitches, and there are hundreds of them. Nobody takes more time between pitches than he does. Well, now he's in the minors, and they have a pitch clock there. Here is a tweet from Alex Friedman, who is a uh, broadcaster for the AAA Oklahoma City Dodgers. And I quote, making his first appearance with Oklahoma City, Pedro Baez has called for a clock violation before he threw his first pitch, <laughs> which is the clock works. And thank you to Sarah Langs for sending this to me and knowing that this is a thing that would appeal to me. And it just it's the perfect combination of player and circumstance. And like I was already in favor of the pitch clock. But if it actually is going to make Pedro Baez, of all people, move a little faster, great. Bring it on yesterday. This this made me so happy, Matt. <laughs> I saw that, too. It's pretty It's pretty funny. Pretty funny. Very fitting. All right. We had a trade. Uh, Andrew Benatendi traded from the Royal City Yankees. Always my favorite kind of trade because the Royals and Yankees are going to play one another tonight in New York for a three-game series. Four-game series? It doesn't matter. He's going to be there playing against his old mates. And... I don't know if this is the sign that trade season is officially happening. Um, I, I don't, I can't get myself super worked up over this one because I think Ben Attendee is a, a decent enough player that I, 
I don't necessarily believe in what he's doing, but they're going to trade Joey Gallo. He is going to take over Joey Gallo's plate appearances. Gallo's been terrible this year. Benintendi makes a ton of contact, and the Yankees have some outfield concerns because now Stanton's hurt, and you know Aaron Hicks has been sort of reliable. They've been playing Matt Carpenter in the outfield a lot, and I thought the trade return of three minor league pitchers was perfectly reasonable. Uh, it was also pretty well reported that he indicated he would be willing to get vaccinated, so the Toronto issue probably won't be an issue. And I don't know, solid B plus, like good for the Yankees. I I think this will help them be a better team this year, and. Who would want more than that? I, I'm I'm a firm believer in the idea of like kind of like diversifying your lineup and having different types of hitters. And so I think that Benintendi is a nice fit on the Yankees because they have a lot of, you know, you know, him replacing Gallo, what's like an opposite. It's a totally, essentially replacing Gallo's at bats, although I guess Gallo's already sort of been benched anyway. But like, it's a nice contrast to the rest of the hitters in their lineup. I mean, I think he's, it's, it's, I think Yankee fans will love him for that reason. That said, like, his, his season this year, I mean, he has three home runs this season. He's hitting for no power. He's slugging below 400. Let's, like, make that very clear. He's become basically very much a slap hitter. And I sort of feel like the way people are going to feel about this trade is going to be based on, like, his batting average and balls in play for the first, like, three weeks. Like, if he's got, like, a, right now this season, his BABIP is 360-plus, 360 right? If he keeps that up, great trade. We love him. If he just happens to have a BABIP of, like, 280 for three weeks and he's hitting, like, 220, fans are going to be like, this guy stinks. It's just, like, this is, like, the variance you get, especially when you're, you, when you're trading for, for a rental player. But I think as, like, an archetype, he fits their, their roster nicely. Yeah, he's, he's putting the ball on the ground more than ever. He's going the opposite way more than ever. I really think the WFAN crowd is going to love him, right? Because, <laughs> like, he plays in that way. He could not be more of an opposite of Joey Gallo. And, like, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I think in some sense he's probably looked at the massive outfield in Kansas City and said, I can't hit home runs here, so I'm not even going to bother trying. Um, but as you said, he's just not hitting the ball that hard. I think it's I think it's fine. Like, I think it's good for the Yankees except that it probably means they're not going to go trade for Juan Soto, although I never thought they were going to trade for Juan Soto. And I also thought the timing was pretty funny because the Yankees just got you know swept. It was a two-game series. But this news came out like 15 minutes after they lost to the Mets last night. And there was definitely a little bit of like, wow, you're so down bad because the Mets beat you. You got to go make a trade like right this second. And obviously it's not a reaction just to that. Although I kind of found it funny on Tuesday, um, the first game of the series, everybody made this big deal out of Aaron Boone bringing in Joey Gallo to pinch hit for Isaiah Kanafalefa. So this is the top of the eighth. The Yankees are losing 5-3, and Edwin Diaz was coming in to pitch, and people are losing their minds. Joey Gallo is hitting 160. Isaiah Kanafalefa, you know, makes a lot of contact. I am interested in your opinion. I thought it was the right call, and I'm going to tell you why. First of all, it didn't matter. Let's be straight about this. Sometimes there are no right answers. Edwin Diaz is having a historically great season. He's striking out like 55% of the guys he's facing. Neither of these guys were going to hit him. Like it almost didn't matter. And in that scenario, okay, so let's say Connor Falefa, uh, there's already two outs. Let's say he gets a single. What's going to happen? The next three guys are going to string together a rally against Edwin Diaz with two outs? No, I kind of buy it. I'd rather have Gallo in there Maybe he makes contact. Maybe it's a home run. It's There are no good answers here. That's kind of where I looked at it. I look at it, I, I, when it comes to these sort of like very clear like A or B decisions, I always like to put, think about what the other dugout wants, right? In that moment, you're you're trailing the Mets by two runs, right? So like I, the, the, the best thing you can get in that moment is a two-run home run. And from the Mets perspective, if I'm Buckshaw Walter, I would rather see 
Isaiah kind of flavor hitting in that in that moment because it's like you know what they're not going to tie the game with one they're they're almost certainly not going to tie the game with one swing and to your point like like it's really unlikely yeah kind of flavor might get a single but the odds of them then continuing to get singles off of uh, off of uh, Edwin Diaz is extremely unlikely so like yeah I think as if you're in the Mets dugout you're like shoot like there's a chance Gallo might run into one very unlikely I mean the as many people joked like the most Highly, highly probable strikeout of the now the pitchers don't hit. Was there a more possible, you know, higher probability of a strikeout of any batter pitcher matchup on the season? Maybe Josh Hader against Joey Gallo because he's lefty, but like Evan Diaz against Joey Gallo is about as close as it gets. But there's also like a much greater chance of him running into one and hitting a home run. I get all the jokes. Gallo's obviously been a disappointment with yeah. the Yankees. <laughs> Um, uh, but yeah, it's, there's, there's, there's no, there's no great answer there when it comes to, you know, facing Edwin Diaz this season. Well, there's also gamesmanship there in, in the sense that, you know, Adovino was pitching. Adovino is a right-hander, right? So you could have had, if you're the Yankees, Kiner Falefa batting against Adam Adovino, and maybe that's not a terrible matchup, but in bringing in Joey Gallo, I think they sort of forced the, the Mets into bringing in Edwin Diaz too, because you don't really want out of, you know, facing Joey Gallo. You can easily see one of those sliders going right into his barrel. So in the sense of, hey, we want to make them waste a little bit of Diaz and maybe that helps us tomorrow. I think that's part of the conversation that got a little lost too. Like it's not just about that game. It's also about the next day. And I, th- I thought that was really smart. Also, not to mention the fact that, like, even in that game, right, like, Diaz doesn't get a lot of four-out saves. So it's, like, even just, we might, hey, like, he's got to do an up-down, like, he's got to rest. Maybe, like, in the ninth, he'll be a little more vulnerable because he's doing something he's he's not accustomed to. And to your point, like, it was unclear last night if, if Diaz was going to be available. It ended up, he ended up not, the, the, the decision point never really came because the Mets won in the bottom of the ninth. Um, but, um, but you know, it... Uh, that's that's a factor there. I want to make one point on Diaz because it relates actually to the the joke you made about Pedro Baez. They they made a reference in the broadcast. One of the broadcasts, I can't remember which night it was, about how Diaz likes to work quickly. Um, and one thing I noticed that, and I'm not saying this is the reason why he's pitching better this year, but I looked at the pitch tempo leaderboards on Baseball Savant, and Diaz is pitching faster this year, um, about a second faster with no one on base, and like three seconds faster with runners on base. And I think as we talk about like the pitch clock in next year, like one thing that I'm curious about is like, there probably is a class of pitchers that might actually be benefited by being like for forced to work faster that maybe like they won't like get in their own head. And they just like, actually like maybe think a little bit less. And like, there's something that I'm curious about. Cause I do wonder if like, I don't know if, if Diaz um, and uh, I, I haven't seen him talk about it, but I'm curious if like he made a conscious decision of the Mets, like, Hey, like you only throw two pitches. They're nasty. Don't overthink it. Just get up there, make a decision, and throw it. Yeah. Because <laughs> it maybe, seems like that's a pretty good strategy. <laughs> maybe, maybe there is something to the fact that, like, you don't have a lot of options here. We're not cycling through six pitches like we're Chris Bassett or whatever. You know, like getting there, grip it and rip it. Um, last night's game was super fun, too. The, the Judge-Scherzer matchups, I think, was some of the most compelling baseball I've seen in a long time. Like, the game within the game, the chess match, obviously two great players, no doubt Hall of Famer and Scherzer and potentially on his way there and Judge. And to watch Scherzer attack him with all of this low stuff, like change-ups and breaking balls and saying, I'm not giving you the fastball you want to crush. Judge went 0 for 5 with three strikeouts, 0 for 4 against Scherzer, and then uh, ground out against Lugo. That was super fun. I would watch an entire baseball game just made out of those two guys going at one another. The 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 one in the, the, to end the seventh inning was two on, two on, two on and two outs. You saw... Scherzer dialed it up to 97, which he doesn't really do anymore. In fact, I looked on Baseball Savant. Max Scherzer, and this is a little misleading because relievers are included, is now in the, this tells you a lot about baseball right now, is now in the 42nd percentile 
in pitcher velo- in fastball velocity. Forty six. He's basically a middle of the road pitcher in terms of fastball velocity right now. Max Scherzer, like famous flamethrower. That's a bit of an aside, but he dialed it up to ninety seven in the seventh to throw it high and inside to clearly try and change the eye level to give him a little more wiggle room on the slider. Of the next pitch, he struck him out. It was uh, it was it was pretty it was pretty classic. Yes, and then after the game, he said that he thought pitchcom should be illegal, <laughs> which I got a big kick out of. Uh, he tried it for the first time. He basically said it should be illegal because uh, sign stealing is part of the game, in his opinion, which like I respect that. I feel like he's in the minority among players because that's been adopted super quickly. Uh, but I got a little bit of a, a kick out of him saying that. Um, the Astros got swept by the A's, which I wanted to bring up just because it's an example of how stupid baseball can be sometimes. <laughs> The A's, excuse me, the Astros, after the break, they swept the Yankees in a doubleheader. They went to Seattle, and Seattle was red hot. They swept the Mariners. They went to Oakland, and they got swept. I don't know what to do with that. It's just, it's not going to matter. It don't doesn't mean anything, but this sport we follow is insane sometimes. I mean, in terms of, I mean... In terms of them catching the Yankees for the best record in the AL, it does kind of matter. This was a perfect opportunity. The Yankees lost two straight games to the Mets. This was a time to to gain ground, and they're still, you know, they're still two games behind the Yankees for the best record in the American League. And like, you know, it's you'd, if you end up in the ALCS against them, you would rather have home field advantage, right? You know, but it's 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 uh, baseball. You can't predict baseball. There, Cole Irvin uh, was an Oakland starter, and he pitched pretty well, but he gave up an absolute blast to Jordan Alvarez. And uh, afterwards, Irvin, who, remember, allowed this home run, said, after the fact, it was a fun one to watch, <laughs> which I respect that. Like, you've just gotten a baseball crushed, and, uh, you know, there's still self-awareness enough to go, oh, that's 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 pretty cool. He pitched well. You know, you're right. There's some meaning there. Uh, the last thing I wanted to get to before we bring in Mark Feinstein is... It is my opinion that even with the extra playoff spots, that the Boston Red Sox are totally cooked. They are in last place in the American League East. Go Orioles. They're 49 and 50. I don't know if you've watched the Red Sox recently, but they have attempted to play defense without gloves. You know, you'll notice I said this a couple weeks ago that um, Franchi Cordero's agent kept like tweeting at me like, hey, look at Franchi. I don't hear from him anymore <laughs> on both sides of the ball. It is not hyperbole, I don't think, to say this is one of the worst months in the history of the Boston Red Sox. After starting the month 2-2, two and two, they are 4-15 and 15 in their last 19, and big red alert sign, I'm about to actually talk about pitcher wins. The Red Sox starting pitchers do not have a win this month. They are 0-12. They have a 7.65 ERA from the rotation in July. That is the worst ERA by starters in a month in the history of the Red Sox. I don't know if you know this, They've been around for a little bit. And Nathan Avaldi, who, uh, potential trade candidate, got hurt, hurt his back, and he came back, and his velocity has been down. The first two months of the season, uh, his four-seamer was just about 97. June 95-3, July 94-7. He got through six yesterday. It didn't look great because, you know, the defense didn't show up behind him. Um, there is nothing good around this team right now. Like, Devers is hurt. Uh, you know, Chrisell got hurt. I'm saying it. They're done. I'm calling it. Yeah, you mentioned their defense. I think uh, I think it was John Boy did like a compilation of Red Sox defensive miscues just for the month of July. Right. <laughs> and it was like just drop pop-ups everywhere. It was shock. It was like two minutes long. It was like shocking how many plays it was. I don't know if uh, that the the Twitter account Freezing Cold Takes listens to podcasts and puts up sound bites. I hope they do not because I think my worst take possibly ever on this podcast. I think it was like three weeks ago where I was like, "Oh yeah, the Red Sox, they're going to make the playoffs." Like I'm pretty confident that they're going <laughs> to. Yeah, not not so much. 
uh, are they going to trade JD Martinez? Well, I'm going to put it this way. They're not going to trade Bogarts. I cannot see a scenario where they trade Bogarts. Are they going to trade JD Martinez? Are they going to try to trade Evaldi? Are they going to try to trade, uh, you know, Kike Hernandez is, is injured, but he'd be an incredible fit on some playoff team. Are, are they ready to sell? Because this has just not gone the way anybody thought it would. I could see, I could definitely see Martinez getting moved. Although, as you mentioned to me the other day, he hasn't played the outfield at all this year, which, yeah, I know there's a DH now in both leagues, but you like, you'd want to be feel okay about playing him in the outfield. But now that he hasn't played all season and the only outfield he's really played the last couple of years is Fenway Park, which is like a unique uh, left field in its own right. DH only JD Martinez is like a little, I mean, like, yeah, I'm sure there's some teams that could use him, but it definitely kind of narrow and definitely narrows the, the market a little bit. I just put two and two together. The Red Sox have played atrocious defense and JD Martinez hasn't even been on the field. And, and that hasn't helped. He's had a weird year. Uh, a 128 OPS plus is still pretty good, but he's only had one homer in the last six weeks. He homered on July 10th and before that, not since June 14th, which is unlike him. Uh, but, you know, we, we've seen him get traded in a pennant race before and go off, you know, Arizona in 2017, I think it was. Um, but he could be a really good fit. I would have said the Mets before they traded for Vogelback because I don't think they want to, you know, DH only guys. I'm going to give you a team I think makes a ton of sense. The Cleveland Guardians, right? Does that team need a bat? JD Martinez there? Yeah. Anybody buying it? Nope, just me. I, that, that, that's actually one of the main. I could, I could see it. I could see it. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Mark Feinsand will tell us all about what's going on leading up to the trade deadline on August 2nd. We'll be right back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike and Matt, and we are very happy to be joined by MLB.com executive reporter and one of our friends and favorites, Mark Feinsand. And this is maybe Mark's busiest time of the year because it's trade deadline season. And Mark, that's actually kind of where I wanted to start. Like people see reports come in, they see sources, and I don't think enough people sort of understand how this works. So like, do you have all 30 GMs in your phone or are you talking to agents or like you know scouting directors or are you sending more texts or receiving more texts like how do you do this job like all year i guess but like specifically this week uh, i definitely send more texts than i receive unfortunately <laughs> um i would say all 30 gms probably not some you just sort of understand aren't going to get back to you and at some point you just sort of stop sending the texts because when you've got like 15 blue texts in a row going down the right side without ever having a response. It's like, okay, I get it. Uh, but that's not to say I'm not in contact with, you know, people at all 30 teams. Uh, it's just, honestly, it's just a constant barrage of texts and phone calls and checking in with people and hoping that they don't block your number from their phone because you text them too much. So uh, agents aren't as involved this time of year. Um, unless their client has a no trade clause, in which case they have to be brought into the 
the mix um, for their guy to be dealt. That's more of a free agency thing. I, I would certainly speak to a lot more agents come the off season. Uh, but yeah, it's just uh, no no text is uh, is too many. And and when I'm having dinner with my wife and she sees the phone buzz, she knows that I'm going to be answering it. I found the I found the blue text reference to be mildly offensive. Mark, some of us don't have iPhones. Some of us are the well, green bubble guys over here. That's me. I, I won't I was, judge. Yeah, I mean, hey, I. People do judge. I hear from people They're like, oh, you're the guy with the green bubble. I'm OK with that. Have you found it to be different this year, the whole market, just in the sense that the rules are different this year? We have expanded playoffs and everybody was sort of wondering how that was going to work. A team like Baltimore, for example, they're probably not going to get in, but at least they can say, well, we might. Whereas in years past, there's no shot. Like, how has that changed things for you? I think it's changed things in that um, some teams, there is more value in getting a wild card spot than others, right? I mean, I think the Red Sox, for instance, or the Giants, these teams have had success. They've won the World Series in the past five to 10 years, uh, multiple World Series in both of those cases. Getting the third wild card spot to get bounced in the first round, or you know, if they feel or believe that they know that they're not good enough to compete with the Yankees or the Astros or the Mets or the Dodgers, maybe there's not that, you know, maybe it's not worth going all in to try to get one of those spots. If you're the Mariners who haven't been in the playoffs since 2001, or you're the Phillies who haven't been in the playoffs in a decade, or you're the Orioles who have been going through this rebuilding process, there might be value in getting those spots. So these are the decisions that these sort of bubble teams have to make. Um, I think what we're finding is they're not making them yet. They're going to wait until maybe Monday before they really decide, okay, are we in, are we out, are we standing pat, are we acquiring, are we selling? Uh, and I think that that combined with the fact that the draft was later this year, um, you know, during All-Star Weekend, uh, a lot of front offices really didn't dig in on the trade front until after the All-Star break. So uh, I think that's why we're sitting here on July 28th and we didn't see the first really meaningful trade, all apologies to Daniel Vogelbach, uh, until last night when the Yankees acquired Andrew Benintendi. Do you feel like the tenor has changed even just in the last couple of weeks? Because I remember like two months ago looking ahead and saying, you know, I don't think this is going to be a super exciting trade deadline. Like, I don't think we're gonna, there's big names and the expanded playoffs are going to change things. And now I've sort of changed my tune on that. But I can't tell if I'm just being swayed by the fact that Juan Soto's name is being kicked around and everything else is the same. Like, how has it changed for you over the last couple of weeks or months? No, no, no. You're, you're exactly basing this on Juan <laughs> Soto being available. Uh, I, I had one GM in a story that I wrote today on MLB.com said to me, quote, the pure exhilaration of the deadline hinges on whether Juan Soto ultimately gets traded. Barring unexpected players being available, unless Soto is traded, the class lacks sex appeal. And he's right. This is <laughs> this is not a very exciting class because when you look ahead of free agency this year, it's not a very exciting free agent class either. You'll have a couple guys opt out who will add into this. Uh, but as of right now, Bogarts, Carlos Rodon, those guys aren't aren't being traded at the moment. They're not on the trade block because those teams that I mentioned, the Red Sox, the Giants, are kind of on the bubble. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this was sort of the Castillo, Montas, Wilson Contreras, and a bunch of relievers trade deadline until Juan Soto's name became available. Now it's, oh, my God, Juan Soto's available. <laughs> I still don't think he's going to get traded. I really think if he's not traded by the end of the weekend, I don't think this happens Monday or Tuesday because I don't think Mike Rizzo wants to put himself in a position where he's up against a deadline and therefore taking 
maybe less than than he thinks he should get because the deadline's coming. I think he's asking for the moon, the stars, the sun, and everything in between. And if he doesn't get it, he'll go back on the trade market this winter. He's got two more years of control. There's no there's no urgency or rush to trade him right now. The thought process is if he can affect three postseasons, then his value is even higher. Probably is. But you've also only got a handful of teams that are really contending, have the uh, minor league system, and can take on that kind of salary. Uh, so it, it limits the options in terms of who could trade for him. Now, Mike Rizzo was on the radio yesterday, and he made a comment about how there's been rumors about how they might want to attach Patrick Corbin's contract in a Soto trade, and Rizzo kind of firm, flatly denied that, but like, we're not going to, I think the quote was, we're not going to dilute, we're not going to dilute a return for any player by adding a bad contract. Like, what do you make of that? Is that just posturing? Like, what's, what's your read? I don't think it's posturing. I, I you know, I did a, a story the other day where I talked to 17 executives about the Soto situation. And I asked them that specific question in, in what do you think it's going to take to get them? Will it just be prospects? Will it be young major league talent? Will you have to take a bad contract such as Patrick Corbin back to make this deal happen? None of them, not one, said they thought that they would require taking back a contract like Corbin for that exact reason that Mike Rizzo said, because the Nationals right now understand they have an opportunity to bring in an immense amount of talent in prospects and young players Um that why would you why would you dilute that by making somebody take back Patrick Corbin? It's not like the Nationals can't afford Patrick Corbin, uh, and it's not like getting rid of his salary is going to all of a sudden be a, a game changer for them as with new ownership or anything else. So I, I don't think it's posturing. I don't I don't think it's something that that Rizzo is going to require in making a deal. I personally am not necessarily buying it. I think you're right. He won't require it. But I can't tell you how many people I saw, you know, reference that quote and say, oh, well, Corbin's definitely not going to be in a deal. And it's like, come on, how many times have we seen a GM say one thing and then do something else? Like, I remember Brian Cashman saying, oh, I told Andrew Miller we're, we're not going to trade him. And then 10 minutes later, he trades him to Cleveland. <laughs> like, these things happen all the time. And I, I kind of wanted to ask you about that. Like, when you look at this market, I mean, I, I wrote about this the other day. This is the potential to be one of the weakest starting pitcher markets on record. Like, I like Castillo, but he was hurt before. And I like Montas, but he was hurt before. And our team's looking at this starting pitcher market and saying, well, this is what we need the most. And it's it's just not there. So we are going to overpay for, uh, you know, a second level guy like a Tyler Molly. Or if you're the Giants and you say, well, maybe I should trade for away Carlos Rodon because he's going to be a free agent. Like, how is that starter market shaping up for you? Well, that's why I think we're not going to have a full uh, sort of assessment of what that starter market really looks like until maybe Monday. Because right now we mentioned Luis Castillo, uh, Frankie Montas. We heard Tariq Skubal out there now, um, you know, Tyler Molly. These aren't overwhelming. This isn't Max Scherzer, right? This isn't Justin Verlander. Um, and so I think when you look at Monday – could Carlos Rodon be on there? Could Nathan Evaldi be on there? Uh, there are other pitchers who, on some of these bubble teams, could the Marlins decide to trade Pablo Lopez? We've heard his name floated out there uh, recently. So I, I think we're not, we don't have a full concept of what this starting pitching market looks like yet. Is somebody going to overpay for you know B-level Noah Syndergaard? I mean, he's out there, but we know it's not Thor from the Mets. It's Noah Syndergaard from the Angels, different pitcher. Uh, you know, now if somebody wants to trade for him to be their number four starter to add some depth, sure, that sounds great. Are you going to hand him the ball in game two of a playoff series? I'm not so sure about that. So 
Um, you know, I think it sets up for the Reds and A's to do very well on Castillo and Montas. And then uh, kind of we'll see what happens. If the Giants were to trade Rodon, I think they'd do pretty well because he's been a pretty darn good starter this year. And, uh, you know, he's probably as good as anybody else who's currently out there. Now, a couple other big names that I think we've heard a lot about are uh, on the Cubs. Specifically, I'm curious about uh, Wilson Contreras and Dave Robertson specifically, because they are both free agents after this year. Ian Happ is another name you hear, but he actually has another year of club control and a slightly different um, valuation, probably, in, in a trade. Do you think the Cubs will try and package these guys together in any way to try and, like, maximize the return? Or do you think they're going to try and make, if they trade them, make three separate trades and think they'll do better that way? I think it's just a matter of whether or not there are teams that are willing, that, that need two or three of those guys and kind of what they're willing to do. I mean, I don't know that that you're going to get a team's, you know, a top three prospect from a team for two expiring contracts. Um, so I, I don't know that they're going to get the kind of value that people are thinking, well, if they package these guys together, they'll get a much higher level prospect. You might get more prospects, but I don't think you'll necessarily get better ones. Um, you know, teams are very willing to trade away sort of those mid-level prospects in in volume versus trading away one high-level prospect. So uh, I'm not sure that, that they're going to be packaged. I mean, I know there was some talk about like the Mets were talking about Contreras and Robertson together. I could see it happening, but I don't think that means that they're going to give up, you know, Francisco Alvarez for him. So uh, I think you could see it, but I don't think it's a requirement. And I think the Cubs are going to look around and understand what the market is for these guys. Robertson's going to bring something really nice back. He's having an outstanding year. He's got postseason experience. Relievers are always, always, uh, you know, appealing trade prospects at the deadline every team there's not a team out there that couldn't use another reliever whereas when you're looking at Contreras there's only a handful of teams that need a catcher and most of the teams who are looking at him aren't even necessarily looking at him as a catcher because it's so tricky this time of year to introduce a new catcher to learn your pitching staff in August so I think Contreras gets traded as a DH and maybe like backup catcher or part-time catcher uh, versus a team bringing him in and saying here you go. You're our starter behind the plate. I want to give you two particular uh, like trouble spots that I think a team might try to improve on. The first is the Mets and a power bat. And we got they got Vogel back and he's fine, but I don't think he's the answer. Where is the power bat they're getting? Who is he and what position does he play? Uh, I think he plays DH, and it wouldn't surprise me if his name is Wilson Contreras. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I think he's sort of the perfect candidate for the Mets to be their most of the time DH and occasional catcher. Uh, because they could use both of those things. Um, that wouldn't shock me at all. I mean, look, could they go out and bring in Nelson Cruz and hope to get two good months out of him at 42? Maybe. Uh, Josh Bell, another guy who obviously isn't going to displace Pete Alonso at first base, but could he be a DH? Absolutely. Um, so there are guys out there who I think would help the Mets lineup. Um, I don't think you're looking at a huge impact power bat. Uh, one interesting name to keep keep an eye on or, or keep in your head is J.D. Martinez, because if Boston decides to sell, perfect DH candidate. Um, we've seen him get traded at the deadline and have a huge impact on a team 
down the stretch. Remember what he did with Arizona uh, and maybe thrusting him into a playoff race with a team like the Mets could could reinvigorate him for a couple of months. I am going to ask you the same question I asked Matt yesterday. Here are the names of two players. Um, I want to know if you know what team's positional depth chart I'm describing here. Rene Pinto and Christian Bethencourt. Do you know where, who is that? The Rays catchers. Yes. Mike Zanino's out for the season. Francisco Mejia hurt his shoulder, and I don't think he's out for the year, but he's going to be out for a minute. Christian Bethencourt hadn't been in the majors since 2017, <laughs> and Rene Pinto is, I think, newly to the majors. That seems to me like a team, you know, they don't usually go out and do like the big thing, right? But Contreras there, if, if not, I don't know, Sean Murphy, like they got to get a catcher from somewhere, right? You would think. Uh, I spoke to some people in Tampa Bay the other day after the news came out that Kiermaier and Zanino were both done for the year. I don't think either of them were a surprise. Zanino's been out for eight weeks already, and I don't know that there was necessarily the thought he was going to be coming back. They acquired Bettencourt to to try to fill some of that, uh, you know, some of that void. Would it surprise me if they went out and got a catcher? No, uh, I don't know that they're going to pony up what it takes to get. Contreras, if the Cubs' asking price is high, um, Murphy was the other guy that, in my mind, I thought was a good fit there. Um, but you know, the Rays, the Rays are different. They do things differently, and they usually have some success doing uh, things their way. So I don't, I, I haven't made a living questioning Eric Neander because uh, it just doesn't <laughs> usually work out well. Now, the the one class of player we know will move at the deadline is relief pitchers. Now it doesn't feel like there's like the 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 big big bold name on the market this year, but like who 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 should we expect to move? Like I feel like there's probably going to be like 20 relievers traded between now and and Tuesday at 6 p.m. Um, it's just a matter of like who they're going to be and like who who should we be looking out for? Yeah, well, Dave Robertson is certainly number one on that list. Obviously, having a fantastic year doesn't cost all that much. I think he's only owed like 1.15 million plus some potential bonuses. Uh, you know, roster bonuses and appearance bonuses that could add another three or four hundred thousand dollars onto there. Um, but he's got a sub two ERA. He's got postseason experience. I think he's kind of the guy that people are are coveting the most. Daniel Bard, another. I mean, we're talking about thirty seven year old relievers here, but these guys are having great years. And Bard's doing you know doing it again in Colorado. He's having a great year. He's a free agent at the end of the year. Um, Matt Moore, another <laughs> another young pup. Uh, having a really nice uh, sort of renaissance in Texas this year. So there are guys out there, like you said, they're not the big sexy names. They're not the Andrew Miller or Roldis Chapman that we saw six years ago. Um, But there certainly are guys who are going to make an impact and help teams out. I mean, look, we looked at the trade deadline last year, and of all the trades that happened, was the Clay Holmes to the Yankees trade one we all sort of circled and said, wow, what a great move. Well, Clay Holmes has only been the best reliever in baseball this year. So uh, just because it's not a big, sexy name doesn't mean it's not going to be impactful. Um, you know, there are some guys with club control who could be moved, but are certainly no surefire things to be moved. Guys like David Bednar in Pittsburgh, Mantiply in Arizona, Jorge Lopez in Baltimore. Uh, you know, these guys certainly have a lot of value. They're having great years. And sometimes GMs look at a guy who's having a great year like that and says, well, maybe uh, maybe I capitalize on the fact that this guy's having an all-star season and we don't know if this is him going forward permanently. Uh, Jimenez in, in Detroit, another guy I think you could see move. He's got one year left. People keep talking about Gregory Soto, but Joe Jimenez is the one guy who's got 
he's got one year of control left versus I think three or four for Soto. So uh, wouldn't surprise me to see him at his move either. All right, last question before we let you go. I think I think we know who like the kind of notable sellers are. Right? We're watching the Nationals. We're watching the Cubs. We're watching the Reds and Castillo. In terms of the quote unquote buyers, who's I don't know, maybe a surprise team team to watch. Who do you think is like the team that you're like okay this team they're going to do something. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be, but it's it's like the team to the the buyer to watch. Who do you think that is? Uh, let me run down some teams in my head here. I mean, you have the obvious buyers in the Yankees, Astros, Mets, Dodgers, et cetera. Padres are always a buyer. The Mariners are a team that interests me only because they've had this great run. They, like I said, they're looking to get back to the playoffs for the first time since 2001. And they've got a GM who, you know, trades are his oxygen. So, uh, you know, would it surprise me if Jerry Depoto went out and did something crazy? No, not at all, because is there anything you can consider crazy when you're talking about Jerry DePoto? Uh, Baltimore is a team I'm super interested in. I could see Mike Elias trying to take the buy and sell approach, um, you know, trade away some guys who are uh, potentially free agents or have a year left, guys like Santander or uh, Trey Mancini. I know that would be unpopular within the fan base because everybody loves Trey Mancini, but he's going to be a free agent. I don't think he's necessarily part of their future. Uh, while bringing in some guys with control to build on what they have going on. Um, so I'd say in the American League, the Mariners are probably the the team I'm most intrigued by. Um, and in the National League, I think the Giants end up either selling or standing pat. I don't think they buy. I'm intrigued to see what Alex Anthopoulos does again, because after his brilliant trade deadline last year, the expectations are any move he makes is going to be the best move ever. So uh, I don't think they're going to make a huge move, but even if they try to make some moves on the margins, you're going to pay a little more attention to them after what he did last year, bringing in an entire new outfield that ended up helping them win the world series. Boy, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that if there's going to be a GM to make a crazy trade, it's going to be Jerry DePoto. Because one thing that we have, uh, we a group of us have been writing at the site for this weekend is like crazy trade that should happen but won't. And my insane contribution was a three-way trade that gets Juan Soto to San Francisco, Carlos Rodon and Wilmer Flores to Seattle, and a bunch of prospects and guys from both teams to Washington. And it's never going to happen. I just wanted out there that I said it because if anybody's going to make it happen, it's going to be Jerry Depoto. Mark, I, I, have, oh, I have one more. The, one be, more. the best thing I saw. Wait, the best thing I saw this week is one of those betting sites out there sends out emails with all of their odds for this and that. One of them sent out odds where Juan Soto could be traded, and there were like twelve teams on the list, and the Mariners weren't one of them. <laughs> and I was like, Has this site never heard of Jerry Depoto? Like Jerry must have seen that and been like, Oh, I'm putting together a thing right now Man. just to show these people. They I don't know what they're talking about. I have one more quick one because you mentioned Alex Anthopoulos. Um, now the Yankees trade for Benintendi. I was talking to a colleague today, and he voted. I think this is an interesting fit. Now that Adam Duvall's hit, it, Adam Duvall's out, a team to take a chance on Joey Gallo, the Braves. And I actually feel like I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of interesting. Does Joey Gallo have any trade value, or would any team even take his salary? Like, what is how is he perceived? Like, it's can the Yankees even get rid of them, or are they gonna have to DFA him? I think they can move them. I don't think you're going to get a lot of value back. I mean, if they can get, you know, somebody to take the salary and get back, you know, bucket of BP balls or something, they'd probably do it uh, just to shed the salary. Look, I think a team like Atlanta, to me, a team like Philly makes good sense for Joey Gallo. Sort of, you know, good ballpark to hit in. Bryce is out for a while. Throw him out there. Let him hit some home runs. He's still a decent defender out there. Um, And maybe a change of scenery is what this guy needs. Remember, this guy was a really, you know, 
good player in Texas. He had the same flaws, but now the things that he did well in Texas, he's not doing in New York. So maybe get him out of New York. I don't know that the Philly spotlight is necessarily a better <laughs> thing for a player. Um, yeah, I was, but I, I, yeah, I, I think there is some value there still. I, I was going to say, I hate both of those fits for Joey Gallo. I, like everything you just said about Philly, Mark, yes. A- Atlanta is already a team built on tons of strikeouts and lots of power. Like they have lots of guys who are Joey Gallo, but better. I think San Diego makes some amount of sense. Just send him back to Texas. Let him be fine. And since we're talking about Joey Gallo, I'll at least briefly point out um, strikeouts are not the problem for him. He's striking out more or less the same as he always does. Even back when he was good, it's just the quality of contact he's making is considerably worse. And I don't know what to make of that, but I am excited for some team. How about Miami? Miami desperately needs power. Just let let him break for two months in Miami and see what happens. I don't know. But By the way, in the history of baseball, has there ever been a more predictable strikeout? Than, than Joey Gallo against Edwin Diaz in the first game of this week's Yankees Med Series. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I would have bet my mortgage on that. Oh, Morgan, Mar- Mar- that's Mar- something we discussed earlier in the podcast. Yes. You're reading our minds. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry you didn't get to hear that, but for the record, I defended the choice of putting him in, and I also said that was the second most, uh, I guess, and not, maybe not a strikeout. We'll go with that. We'll go was extremely All predictable. Right, to apologize to the listeners, you have to tell me right now what your defense of that choice was, because... I would have put any other batter okay. on my bench the, the in ten, that game the, instead of Joey Gallo. The 10-second version of it is, first of all, Edwin Diaz is having maybe the greatest relief season of all time. So to expect that any hitter is going to go up there with a good shot, no. Like, you're you're picking from two bad options. The second thing is, in that scenario, what are you going to do? Just string together four hits in a row that you might get if I kind of left like someone? No. I'd rather have the guy who might have a chance of actually hitting a home run in that situation. Either way, it was doomed. Like, they were not going to win either way in that situation. That was my argument. All right. Well, if you think there was a chance Joey Yellow was going to make contact, then <laughs> God bless you. saying there's a chance. Mark, thanks so much for your time. Uh, good luck this weekend and uh, leading up to Tuesday. And I hope you get some time off after that. And uh, make sure you follow Mark and read everything Mark says, because uh, he knows a lot more about this stuff than we do. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike and Matt, our thanks to Mark Feinstein for giving us all sorts of intel about what's going on with the trade market. We always like to end the show with a pair of guys that you should talk about a little more. Mine is from the Baltimore Orioles, a team that we really need to start talking a little more about. And he has been around for shockingly forever, despite the fact he's not even that old. My guy is Ramon Urias, who is an infielder for the Orioles. Uh, he's got 11 home runs this year. He's hitting one, uh, 114 OPS plus, and he's 90th percentile in hard hit rate. And he's kind of taken over the third base job for the Orioles. And there's a couple of reasons I wanted to talk about him. One is just because he's a good way to get into, you know, what the Orioles are doing and how they're rebuilding. But I was looking at a very specific leaderboard the other day, and it was just who hits sinkers the best, right? 21, 2021 and 2022, I looked at run values against sinkers, right? Number one, Pete Alonso. Yeah, that makes sense. Number three, Darren Ruff. Well, that, not surprising if you know his swing path and all that. Number two, Ramon Urias. And I'm like, that is absolutely fascinating. And when I looked at his history, I could not believe how long he's been around for. He made his major league debut in 2020, but he actually signed with the Rangers as an international free agent in 2010. 
and he played the next two years in the Dominican League for the Rangers before he was loaned to Mexico City. And he actually played in Mexico for the next five seasons. So he did not really make his uh, North American pro debut until 2018 when he signed a minor league deal with the Cardinals. He hit pretty well in 2018 and 2019, but in February of 2020, the Cardinals DFA'd him. I know, another one. I'm sorry, Cardinals fans. This keeps happening. Credit your player development, guys, I guess. I don't know. They DFA'd him so they could sign Ricardo Sanchez, who pitched five and a third total innings for the Cardinals. Uh, Baltimore claimed him just days later. He got into 10 games that year in 2020, hit 360, was kind of a backup last year, and he's kind of turned into their starting third baseman this year. And that's kind of a big deal. I went, here is a list of names. I'm telling you, names. They traded away Manny Machado in July of 2018. Here's a list of Baltimore third basemen since then. Rio Ruiz, Mike Calfranco, Hanser Alberto, Renato Nunez, Kelvin Gutierrez, Tyler Nevin, Jace Peterson, Domingo Leba, Pat Valleca, Jonathan Arauz, Rylan Bannon, and Stevie Wilkerson. It's here that I would say that I've remembered some guys, but I don't remember most of those guys. And it kind of tells you like how lost in the wilderness this team has been. I don't think Arias is the next superstar. Might even get traded this week. But I do think it's kind of a, another cool way to say like they're getting better at finding guys guys who can help them win, and the cherry on top, which I did not even know until this morning, his little brother is Milwaukee infielder Luis Arias. It's a real baseball family. I'm pretty into the Orioles right now, and uh, Arias is one of those guys why. We didn't plan this, but I realized that this is a little theme here. My guy was also originally signed by the Texas Rangers, made his debut in 2020, and has a famous relative who played the big leagues. So, there's a, there's a theme here, and that's uh, my guy is Leo de Tavares on the Rangers. I was looking last night at the Fangraphs leaderboard, top hitters in terms of weighted runs created plus over the last 30 days. You've got Austin Riley. Okay. Juan Soto. Sure. Aaron Judge. Yes. Freddie Freeman, of course. And then Leo de Tavares. Yes. Leo de Tavares. He's hitting, he's hitting 385, 424. 628 in that span. Absolutely raking. However, it comes with a huge caveat as a batting average on balls in play above 470. So I don't really know what to make of this guy, but I'll go into it a little bit more. But it's interesting because, so here's a guy, Leonardo Tavares, originally signed in 2015. This is one of the all-time great international um, signing classes. Um, he was one of the top prospects in that class. He signed for $2.1 million dollars. Also in that class was Vlad Jr., Juan Soto, and Fernando Tatis Jr. And Tavares signed for more money than Soto or Tatis. He was considered a bigger prospect than those guys. Um, also the Dominican Republic. He was ranked as high as number 34 in, on MLB Pipeline's top 100 prospects going into the 28th season. Switch hitter, lots of speed, interesting profile, and just like has never really gotten it together. Um, Levi Weaver did a piece on him this week in The Athletic where he kind of talked about how basically at the end of spring training this year, the Rangers basically like took him off the field. Basically, you're not going to play. You're not going to play for a few days. We're just going to go. We're going to get you in the cage. We're going to basically try and remake your swing on the fly. I guess he'd been opening up a little bit too much. They tried to be like, hit the ball in the middle of the field. You're just like, you're you're pulling off the ball from both sides of the ball. He tries to have an identical swing from both sides. Um, He went to AAA to start the season, raked for a month, then was terrible in May. And then he got a break because Eli White got hurt. And they were like, okay, I guess we'll call him up. And sure enough, he just went on an absolute heater, especially as a right-hander against left-handed pitchers. As a righty against lefty, so far this season, he is hitting 440, 
517-680. Of course, as I noted before, the batting average on balls in play. For the season, he has a 292 expected Woba and a 396 Woba. Only Matt Carpenter has a larger gap between expected Woba and Woba in terms of um, outperforming quality of contact than Tavares. So I bring him up because it looks kind of fluky, um, but he's got this interesting pedigree. His cousin is a former Rockies outfielder, uh, Willie Tavares. That's his his Major League uh, Baseball connection. Um, Feels kind of fluky, but he has this pedigree. There's obviously some tools there. The Rangers are looking for guys. I kind of wanted to bring him up because he's been on the radar for a while. And this is like, at least in terms of success, this is the most success he's had in the majors. But I think it's actually a really, it's a real challenge for the Rangers from a, from an evaluation standpoint, when you're thinking of how you can build your team for next year, you're like, well, what do we do with this guy? Like on paper, it's like, this guy's been great. But like, you look under the hood and you're like, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't really know how you, I guess you can't really think of him as suddenly a key part of your future. Can you? You know, I was thinking about this because I, I agree with you that I've been thinking about him for a long time and I was going to add on him. And then I just looked it up. He's still only 23 years old. <laughs> he's not even 24 yet. And he's regarded as a fantastic defensive outfielder. Like he doesn't have to hit that much. It's not going to do what he's doing now, obviously, as you said. But you could still have him be part of the future because we've seen guys take a minute to figure it out. And if he just hits a little bit with that glove, yeah, he could definitely be part of the future. He's also in his, in his major league career, 24 for 27 in stolen bases. So like, yeah, you're right. As a switch hitter with that profile, at the very least, he profiles as, as like a, 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 a bench outfielder. But like, obviously, given the age, you hope maybe like there's something there because he he's certainly a guy that could maintain a high batting average on balls of play. Maybe not, you know, 470. But given the given the speed, you know, it's not crazy to think that he will always have uh, batting average on balls of play above above uh, above league average. And quickly before we're finished, just going back to uh, my guy Ramon Arias for a minute, I was I was clicking around Matt while you were talking about Tavares, and here's what I found. So I can't promise there's not a better example of this because I I couldn't get Luke Voigt into this. Um, Saturday, May nineteenth, twenty eighteen, the Memphis Redbirds beat the Colorado Spring Sky Sox eleven to four. I'm going to read you part of the Memphis. Redbirds batting order. Okay. Number three that day was Patrick Wisdom, who was playing third base. Number five, Adolis Garcia, who has now become something of a star for Texas. Number six, Ramon Arias. And batting seventh, Randy Arozarena <laughs> playing left field. I'm going to try to find one where there's also Luke Voigt playing first base because I and I alone would think that's very funny. Um, but yeah, again, credit to the Cardinals player development staff. They know how to find the guys, not necessarily keep them. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.